Good morning. So good to see you here this morning. I am just glad to be together as a church and to get to worship as a church. So let's do that this morning. This is my song. 
Go ahead and have a seat for a minute while I uh, just have a few announcements for us today. Um, just a reminder, we have our communication card inside the worship guide as you came in, or it's a link if you're watching online, and we'd love to have you fill that out. We'd love to hear what's going on in your lives or to get information from you, um, address change or something like that. So please go ahead and fill that out and drop it in the back as you leave. And um, also, and there's our events sheet. We don't have a whole lot coming up on the calendar right now, but there's a couple of things I want to mention. Um, one is this is the last Sunday for the college lunch. Um, so if you know any college kids, um, you can still tell them that we provide lunches after church on Sunday, but we're taking a break for the summer. But we'll pick it up again in the fall when school starts up. So this is their last week to do that. A lot of them are going to travel back to hometowns and stuff like that. And speaking of students, we have two exchange students uh, here for the summer looking for some housing for just the month of June. Two male students. If you know anyone or if you have something or if you have any leads, please talk to Warren. We'd love to help those guys out. So again, it's just now through the end of June and they have something for the rest of the summer. All right. Um, keeping it short and sweet today. That's pretty much it as far as announcements go. Check out the other things that are in your bulletin or on the website if you have questions about small groups or anything like that. Um, but for now, let's just continue in our, in our worship time. stand again with us. worth 
Till on that cross, as he 
humbly to pray these things that we do need you and we want to learn to rise our song to you when temptation is in our face God and when the temptation is too much God may we fall on you and just give it all to you and lean on you and trust in you God thank you for this time we can be together as a church and praise you and sing and learn and grow all good things to do in your presence God please continue to be in this place Lord as we lean on you and as we look to you in Jesus name Amen go and have a seat awesome thank you guys good morning everyone uh you don't know me or weren't here last week. Uh, my name is Warren Davey. Uh, I work with the college ministry, uh, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I guess you guys have me as uh, the last guest speaker before Brian comes back, so he's going to be back next week, right? Looking forward to that. Looking forward to having him back. Um, so we're all excited to see him again. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, or and you need a refresher, or if you weren't here, uh, what we spoke on last week, or what I guess I spoke on and y'all listened to, um, was good fruit, right? Uh, these, these, uh, I wanted to spend time looking at good fruit. And, and last week we talked about why we bear good fruit, uh, why it's important to bear good fruit. Uh, and this week I want to look at the opposite end of that. How do we bear good fruit, right? Uh, we, we need to get that order right. Uh, we're saved to do good works, we are not saved by our good works, right? And I think that's so important because Christianity uh, is frankly the only religion that offers it in that order, right? You do salvation first and then you have good works come after it, not you do good works and earn your way into heaven, right? And if you get that order mixed up, then uh, you end up with someone else's gospel, but you don't end up with Jesus's gospel. Um, And so since last week we focused on that uh, you were saved part. Uh, now we're going to look at uh, how to bear good fruit. And more specifically, uh, what does Jesus say about cultivating our lives in such a way that becomes conducive to bearing good fruit? 
Uh, so with that topic, with that general overview, uh, why don't we take a quick second to pray? Uh, if we were wanting to cultivate, uh, to make good space for Christ to grow good fruit in our life, let's pray and invite him to do that. Uh, King Jesus, as we open your word, as we look at scripture and what you have to say to us, uh, God, would you uh, show us ways that we can cultivate, that we can orient our lives, that we can make space where you can grow good fruit in us uh, as evidence of our salvation, as the end result of our salvation, uh, and as a response of praise and worship to you for our salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 4. And while y'all do that, while y'all flip over to that, uh, let me tell you a bit about the passage that we're going to be reading today. Uh, I, I would consider this, personally, to be Jesus' most important parable. And I don't say this lightly. I don't say this as a little attention grabber, clickbait or something. Uh, but really, if you look at this parable, uh, it's the only one that Jesus says uh, is the key to understanding all the rest of the parables. Uh, he says that in Mark 4, where he retells the same story. Uh, so if you're, you know, want to check me on that, Mark 4, 13, Jesus says that this parable helps you understand all the parables. Uh, in fact, in the book of Luke, this is the first official parable. Uh, and so all the other parables that Jesus tells after this first one uh, have to fall in line with this one. It's like the gate, right? If you don't, if you don't get through the gate correctly, uh, you haven't gotten into all the rest of it. Uh, so the reason I say this is because this parable deals with how we listen to God's word, how we receive God's word, and what kind of difference it makes on our heart. If we're not receiving God's word properly, and God's word is the rest of the parables, right? If we're not receiving God's word properly, then none of it is going to make a big impact on our lives. But when our attitude and our reception is good, the gospel, the word of God, can take deep root in our hearts and really make an impact. Uh, if we skip to the end of, of the, I'm going to start at the bottom and then work my way back up, I guess. Uh, over here at the end in, in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, uh, Jesus says, Take care then how you listen, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So take care how you listen. Uh, it's important how we listen to God's word. The one who has, uh, more will be given. So if you get this first parable, you'll understand all the rest of Jesus' teachings. And the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Or in other words, if you don't get this, no matter how much spiritual wisdom you try to build yourself up with, it's not going to work, right? And that's the secret of getting this first parable right. It encourages us to hear the word of God as a disciple with the right heart. Uh, and tells us that if we approach Jesus' teachings with this faith, with this idea of wanting to receive, wanting to learn, coming with true humility, wanting to gain something from Jesus, then we'll have the benefit of all of his other parables. So with that context in mind, hopefully I've, I've piqued your interest enough to where you're like, okay, this is really important what we're about to read, right? Uh, with this in mind, let's uh, start in verse 4. And we're going to start uh, read from chapter 8. Uh, it says this, And when a great crowd was gathering... And people from town after town came to him. He said, in, he said this in a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell on good soil and yielded a, uh, yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, 
To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones of the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root, they believe for a little while, and in a time of testing they fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go in their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast uh, with an honest and good heart, and bear much fruit with patience. So starting up there at the top, right, in verse 4 it says, uh, a great crowd was, ca- was gathering, and people came from town after town. So my first question is, who are these people? You know, why are they coming to see Jesus? Uh, wh- what kind of audience is Jesus speaking to when he starts deciding to, to flip to speaking in parables? Because uh, before, if you look back a little bit earlier, he's speaking really plainly to them, right? Uh, Luke chapter 6 has what's called uh, the, the Sermon on the Plain, and it's a, uh, Jesus is speaking on a flat area. That's why it's called the Plain. But it's also a plain sermon, right? He's speaking very clearly. People don't come up to him afterward and say, hey, what did you mean by this? Uh, he's being, being very direct. Uh, so what about this audience in particular made him switch from this really plain style of preaching to this parable style of teaching, right? Well, first of all, first thing to note, uh, most of the people in this crowd were probably religious people uh, who had grown up hearing these stories about prophets and kings. Uh, this whole this whole half of the Bible over here on this side, this was what they were familiar with. They knew all the stories by heart. Uh, this wasn't their first time hearing uh, religious teachings. And in fact, likely this wasn't even their first time hearing Jesus' own message, right? If you flip back a few pages in Luke, in chapter 4 we're told that Jesus made an initial tour preaching through all the synagogues in Galilee. He does some miracles, he preaches the gospel very plainly, and he causes quite a stir in the whole region. So that's his first kind of circuit around the area. And then in the start of Luke 8, we see that he's going again through every town and village in the region. So this is round two for him in that same area. I bring this up not because it's a neat trivia fact, right? We're not going to have a harvest trivia night, and one of the questions isn't going to be, hey, how many times did Jesus preach through Galilee? Uh, Don't mark it down for that reason. But instead, uh, the reason I bring this up uh, is because I think uh, it matters a lot with what Jesus is trying to accomplish, right? What is Jesus trying to do with these parables? Uh, one verse that gives a lot of people pause and is really troubling for people is verse 10. Look at, look at verse 10. It says, uh, to you it has been given, right? But for others they are in parables so that, and then Jesus says, so that it can be confusing, right? Uh, it kind of sounds like Jesus is intentionally trying to prevent people from understanding his message. Like he's going out of his way to make it more difficult, Uh, If we read nothing else, if we just read that verse by itself in isolation, it it would kind of seem like Jesus is trying to hide the truth and then expecting people to still get an A-plus on the exam, right? Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys uh, know that's a bad teacher who does that, right? If a teacher is intentionally teaching you poorly, if a teacher teaches you 2 plus 2 is 5 and then marks you wrong for putting that on the exam, you've got a bad teacher on your hand. So is Jesus a bad teacher? Is that what's going on here? Well, I think going back to that second tour, right, that that second round around Galilee, we get a better idea of what's going on. 
Um, so think about the first tour, right? Jesus comes through and he's doing a lot of preaching. And he's performing a lot of miracles. And I don't know about you, but in a time before YouTube or Facebook existed, that'd be like the circus coming into town, right? I mean, I can just imagine that you're, you're out there living in Galilee and all of a sudden this guy shows up and he can make bread appear out of thin air and, and he's healing people left and right. And my cousin John, who hasn't seen since he was a kid, suddenly gained his eyesight. Wow, that's so cool. That's so amazing. Bill, were you there to see it? Bill, oh, you missed it. Bill, you should have come, man. Bill, I don't know when the next time he's going to come is. He just kind of left, went away. He didn't pass out flyers for the next time he's going to come in town, but I'm sorry that you missed it, man. Now put yourself in Bill's shoes. You hear all these stories. You hear about this miracle man who came through the region. You, you know, you've got no, no uh, entertainment. You've got no smartphone. You've got no Facebook. And then you hear, this guy's coming back. This guy's back in town. I don't know about you, but whatever I'm doing, like unless my wife is dying or something, I'm dropping everything and I'm going to see this miracle man, right? My friends talked about him so much that that second tour, if I missed it, and even if I was there the first time, you know that I'm going to come back to it because I want to see the cool wandering holy man, right? I would, I would go out of just curiosity, out of, out of peer pressure, maybe even just wanting to see a miracle firsthand, that excitement there, right? But the problem is Jesus didn't come to Galilee Jesus didn't come to earth to entertain us, right? That's not his purpose. He's not a circus act coming to town looking to get attention and, and having people look at him and have the focus on him. Jesus isn't here to entertain. He's the son of God who came with a very particular purpose. And so when people start gathering to see him, to pass the time, to be entertained, to, to watch this circus performance, Jesus challenges them and Jesus starts teaching hard teachings because he wants to sift through. He wants to see Who's here for the right motive and who's here for the wrong motive, right? All the people see him and all the people hear what he's saying, but not all of them truly grasp and understand what he's getting at. And that's what he's doing here. He's sifting through who's here for the right and wrong reason. When we think about uh, this parable, uh, when we think about parables in general, uh, oftentimes, you know, the point of a parable is that it's a, a teaching that takes a little bit of thinking to get to, right? It's a little bit uh, covered up, you might say. Um, and, and we tend to think, man, if only Jesus had spoken more clearly, maybe more people would have been saved, right? Uh, if only Jesus hadn't spoken in parables, maybe if he just spoken plain and directly, people would have been saved. Uh, but in response to that, Jesus says two things, uh, or I think there's two things worth bringing up. Uh, one of them in the parable, the story of the parable itself, and one outside, so the one outside the parable, if you actually look at the parable, uh, Jesus' disciples, they didn't get it the first time. I mean, these are the people who've been following him around, right? You have some people who come out of the cities to come see him. These guys followed him everywhere he went, right? Where he slept, they slept. Where he ate, they ate. Where he lived, they lived, right? And even they didn't get it. But they're the ones who were hungry. They're the ones who wanted to know more. They're the ones who did something about their questions, when Jesus tells the parable and they don't get it, they walk up to him and they say, teacher, can you explain what you said to us, right? And he does. He gives openly. He gives willingly, right? So the ones who actually take the time to do something with their questions and for the ones who don't just leave it at their questions, man, that was weird. I wonder what that meant. Oh, well, time to go get lunch, right? <laughs> for the ones who actually had questions, who actually came to him and asked him to give more, he gave with an open hand. Second, in the parable itself, in the story of the, of the soils itself, uh, the problem isn't with the seed or the sower, right? It's the same seed. It's the same sower the whole time. And in fact, we're told that the seed is very powerful, 
right? The seed is the word of God itself. There's nothing insufficient about the seed that, that causes the seed to not grow up as much in some soils. Uh, instead, it's the lack of reception of the seed that causes less fruit, that causes different changes in the four soils, right? Um, so it's not the seed that's the blame. It's not the word of God that's the blame for the problem. It's what's going on in the heart that receives the word of God. So with that in mind, uh, as we dive into the meat of this text, I want to challenge us really quickly, right? Um, Because if you want to bear good fruit, if you're gripped by the reality that there's a calling and a promise and a fulfillment offered by a life lived in line with God's calling and God's will, don't just be like the, the listeners who came to be an audience, right? Don't be like the listeners who came to see a circus performance or be entertained or see a spectacle, the point of parables is that they, they make you think deeply about yourself and how do I line up with this, right? So when we read this parable, don't be quick to jump to the conclusion, oh yeah, I'm the good soil, right? And really examine yourself and really ask yourself, do I have, uh, do I have deep roots in my heart? Am, I'm, or am I the one who withers up and dries away? Or are there, are there weeds and thorns in my heart that need to be pulled out, right? Because don't get me wrong, it's not just you know those people out there who have problems with their soil right i'm not talking about like oh it's just other non-christians or those worse off christians over there who need to listen to this parable and do something about the soil of their heart uh, we all have stuff going on that needs to be constantly gardened that that soil that needs to be constantly changed uh, there's a really good commentary on this on this uh these verses that i like from matthew henry uh, and it says this uh the that which distinguishes the good soil from the rest was in one word, fruitfulness. Jesus did not say that the good soil was perfect, that it had no stones in it, no weeds, but only that none of these prevented its fruitfulness, right? So what I'm asking you to do is don't think of yourself as good soil that's perfect, that doesn't need any change, that's all the way correct. The question is, what are areas of your life that have uh, these hindrances to bearing a lot of good fruit? So uh, as we're going to look at the different soils, uh, we've already started touching on the first one, actually, right? Uh, So what is the way that the first soil hinders the bearing of good fruit? What is the way that it stops the bearing of good fruit? Um, In the first way, it's actually not listening to God's word, right? Not, Not listening, not letting it soak in, not taking it in. That's the problem with the first soil. The soil uh, is the hardened path, right? Uh, and and it, clo- it means you're closing yourself off to God's word. Uh, you're not actually letting his words sink in deep to your heart. Jesus tells us that the soils represent different heart conditions. Uh, and in this one, he describes the hardened path as that which has been trampled underfoot, right? How many times do you have to walk across a, a bit of loose soil before it becomes hardened, like, like the path, right? Uh, I don't, I don't, I can't give you an exact number, but I can guarantee it's more than just once or twice, right? That hardened path likely was walked a, a million times before it actually became hardened over, right? In the same way for the original audience, remember, these were really religious people. They'd grown up reading the law of Moses. They attended their, their good Hebrew school, right? They even had Jesus himself come by their town and, and preach to them, talk to them himself, right? How often have we wished that was the case? They had that firsthand, uh, and still a lot of them were hardened soil. 
But what if we were honest with ourselves? What if we turn from uh, you know those people in the story to to us? What if we turn to the people who are you know the usual suspects you see every morning uh, in church on Sunday? What if some of us suffer from that hardened soil syndrome? Suddenly that starts getting a little bit uncomfortable, right? Uh, I know this because I grew up as a church kid, right? I was in the pews every Sunday morning, right? Uh, I could tell you, you know, as soon as I said, oh, we're reading from the parable of the four soils, I knew what the story was. And mentally, I was like, okay, he's going to talk about this soil, that soil, that soil, and then he's going to finish with this. Okay, I know what's going to happen. I can check out now, right? Because I knew what was coming up ahead, because I'd already seen the movie, I just checked out for the entire thing and missed the entire point, right? I never let it sink in below surface level because I was proud in how much I knew religiously. I knew so much about religion. I knew so much about uh, the Bible that I didn't actually know what God was trying to say to me today, right? Um, My pride kept me from actually experiencing the grace of God. And so when we've assumed that we've heard it all before, uh, when we allow our pride to win, when we think that the Bible doesn't have anything new to say to us specifically, we harden our hearts and we don't allow God's work uh, do God's word to speak in a life-changing, graceful way in our lives. What makes this problem even more difficult is that dismissing God's word, ignoring God's word, not listening to God's word, is aided by an enemy uh, who has devoted every possible resource to making sure that the, the word doesn't grow up in fruitfulness, that the seed doesn't take root. By any trick necessary, Satan wants to make sure that the seed doesn't stick stick around long enough to gain a rooted uh, good foothold, right? That's the birds in this passage, right? We're told that the birds represent Satan and our spiritual enemies who want to take away the word. Satan knows that God's word is powerful, that it brings about salvation and and fruit-bearing relationship with God. And that's dangerous to him, right? Those people who were once his enemies, right? Those, or, sorry, those people who were once on his team, who were once his subjects, have now become soldiers for his enemy. That's a dangerous place to be, right? And so because the seed is powerful, the birds swoop in and try to remove it as quickly as possible so that it doesn't take root. Well, Jesus says in verse 12 that, you know, the, the birds come in ultimately uh, so that people may not hear uh, and may not believe and may not be saved. Uh, I, so ultimately, this is about salvation. Ultimately, from the mile high big picture, this is about salvation. Uh, sometimes Christians, as Christians, we can be just as hard hearted. Uh, we can have moments that are prone to the birds swooping in uh, and taking the seed. Um, even though we have seed that's taken root that has made us saved, uh, the birds come in and try to peck the fruit off the vine, right? Um, they want to keep the, the fruit to a minimum. Uh, this doesn't always come in obvious ways. Sometimes Satan's best work isn't by directly attacking you with doubt, but instead by making us distracted. When we're doubting, when we're in times of pain and hurting, a lot of times we turn to God because that's what we've been trained to do. You know, you turn to God because you have nowhere else to go. You turn to God because you have questions. But when we're distracted, we're thinking about anything else other than Jesus, right? Uh, There's a really good book uh, by C.S. Lewis, and he kind of imagines, you know, what it'd be like for a demon uh, to tempt a person, right? Uh, And this demon is writing, and this demon says, uh, talks about this experience where uh, his subject, the person that he's tempting, uh, is turning his focus towards God. And so the demon says this, Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work begin to totter. If I had lost my head and began 
uh, to attempt a defense by argument, I would have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man I knew I best had under my control, and I suggested, it's time to get some lunch. That's all it takes, right? Sometimes that's all it takes, just a quick suggestion. A little phone buzz here, a plan to grab lunch after service, or maybe heavy eyelids because you stayed up too late on Saturday night. All these things can be enough to make sure that you're distracted enough that God's word doesn't sink in, right? Many of us walk into church, uh, stand up when everybody else stands up. Maybe even, maybe even take a few notes, right? Maybe you even write down a, a word or two that gets said here today. But then as soon as you hit the parking lot, we're just as grumpy, we're just as angry, we're just as cruel as any other day of the week. I, I, know, I know some friends of mine who are waiters who talk about the, the after-church Sunday crowd, right? And they talk about how that's some of the worst customer service experiences that they have. People being demanding, angry, fed up, uh, partially because maybe the, the preacher went over on time and so they're extra hungry, right? Where's the evidence of God's love? Where's the evidence of God's grace changing your life? Where's the evidence that you were ever in church that morning if you're going to be worse than everybody else on Sunday lunch? If you want evidence that you have a hardened heart, if you want evidence that God's word had no impact on your house, on your, on your heart, that the seed just hit and bounced off a hardened path, that's the evidence of what you do after church on Sunday, right? And it doesn't matter if you come and stand up when everybody comes, and it doesn't matter if you sing louder than everyone else when you're in church. If the second you turn around, it's going to act, it's going to be like it was never there in the first place. Therefore, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to make this a priority, let the seed sink in deep below the topsoil. Don't let pride, don't let distractions keep you from listening to God. Be committed, you know, grab the word, fight to listen, block out all the distractions. That's the first step, right? But that's not the only soil that Jesus talks about here. No, the second soil uh, he talks about, the second way to kill God's word, the second way to stop it from being fruitful in your life, is to listen without actually being changed on the inside. It's, this soil is, I think, about those who claim to be Christian without actually letting Jesus change their hearts. It's pretty easy to say out loud, I'm a Christian. You're not required to do anything to be saved. That's what we talked about last week, right? You don't contribute anything to your own salvation. It's a free gift. That's a pretty good deal. I give nothing and I get everything in return, right? That's a good deal, especially when you compare it to a lot of other religious systems that have hundreds of laws that you have to live up to. And still at the end of the day, even if you kept all those laws perfectly, you have no guarantee that you're going to be saved. I mean, sign me up for Christianity. This is fantastic, right? The problem is when we think about the gospel this way, when we think about, you know, it's so easy and I just need to say it out loud and that's it. I don't need to actually be changed in any way. We're not carefully considering what it means in the long run, right? What about when your wife gets sick? What about when your job downsizes? What about when you're left without a way to pay for the bills? You know, if you only came to church because, you know, when you were a kid, they had the bounce houses and the fun games and everything was so bright and colorful. If that's the only reason you came, what about when you start to grow gray hairs, when the bounce houses and the loud music and the flash and the fun isn't just as entertaining anymore? What about when it becomes unpopular or uncool uh, up to believe what the Bible teaches on social issues? That's where this evidence of faith element comes into play, right? 
holding fast to God's word uh, doesn't make you a Christian, right? It's, and remember, it's the right order. It's not works, then you're saved. It's saved, showed by your works, right? It reveals whether you were saved at all in the first place, whether that under the surface, below the surface, where no one else can see what's going on down there. Because once you're made alive in Christ, there's no turning back, right? If Jesus is your Lord, then even when things are hard, you're going to follow, right? Here we're talking about the rocky soil where uh, when things get hard in the time of testing, it talks about, they turn their back on Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord, no matter how hard things get, you can't turn your back on him. And I think that's the difference between a Lord and a president, right? A president, you can, you can elect him when you, when you like what he's saying, or you can elect someone else. A president, you can ignore. You have certain rights. You're a citizen. Uh, one of our, our constitutional uh, guarantees is that there's no unha- unlawful housing. So if a president comes up to your house and says, hey, let me sleep in your bed tonight, you can say no, and you can shut the door. You are a citizen. You have rights, right? Uh, if he says something that you don't agree with, you can just vote for the next guy in the next election that comes around. But a lord? Man, you, you don't have a choice. A lord comes up to you and says, hey, I want to sleep in your bed tonight. You ask him, hey, which pillow are you taking with that? Right? You don't have a choice. Right? And so if Jesus is your lord, you can't just turn him on and off. You can't just listen sometimes when it's cool and then not other times when it's not cool. The Bible isn't a buffet. Right? This isn't a pick and choose which verses you want to listen to, which verses are okay for you, and you can leave out the rest. You either take it all or you take none of it. Jesus isn't satisfied to be your president. He demands to be your Lord if you are a Christian. And so uh, that's what the rocky soil for me represents. Those who say they're Christian without actually letting under the surface, below the surface, things change. Because under the surface, they're still harboring those rocks that get in the way, those, those rocks uh, that, that prevent that growth. I love that this talks about rocks. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations of the gospel, and we actually talked about it last week, uh, comes from Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, where God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, right? This rocky heart under the surface where no one else can see. And I'll give you a heart of flesh, right? Well, it's true that God loves us. This isn't the kind of love that's content to leave us in a bad place. This isn't just God verbally saying, I love you, just like some of us verbally say, I'm a Christian. It's the kind of love that wants to do something and demands to do something. Imagine it like this, right? This is the kind of love that I'm talking about. Imagine that I went to a hospital, uh, and let's say my brother, I love my brother very deeply. Let's say my brother is dying of cancer there in the hospital. Uh, and, And I walk up to him and I say, hey, I want you to know that I love you just the way you are. Cancer and all, it doesn't matter to me. I just love you the way you are. Uh, and I have in my back pocket here a, a vial of, of liquid that is the magic cure to cancer. But hey, I just want you to know, cancer and all, I love you how you are. You don't need to change for me for me to love you. And I keep that vial, I keep it in my back pocket, and I don't give it to him. In fact, I don't even tell him about it. How loving of a brother do you think I am at that point? If I just tell him, hey, your cancer, I love your cancer. I love that as a part of you. I wouldn't want to change that for the world. I know it's killing you. Uh, I know that it, it's eating you up on the inside. I know it's hindering your life as you live it. And I, I know I have the cure for it here in my back pocket. But, you know, I just love your cancer. I love that it's a part of you. And I, I accept that as a part of you. And how loving is that actually? We might say it's loving. I say the word love over and over again. But just saying the word love over and over again doesn't actually make it loving. And Jesus loves us uh, as someone who gives us the cure to the cancer. 
Because let's be honest for a second, sin is so much worse than cancer. Cancer kills the body. Sin kills the body and the soul. It separates us from God. And so Jesus isn't content to see us there with the cancer. He gives us the cure. Jesus isn't content to, you know, hey, I'm going to clear off the, the soil on top of this rocky soil where everybody else can see that there's, you know, the, the, the little sprout growing from the seed. And from the outside, everybody thinks everything's okay. Now, Jesus wants to address what's under the surface, those rocks that are underneath, those rocks that no one else can see, the rocks that only Jesus can see. He wants that to be removed, and he wants a new heart to be put in its place, right? It's not enough for the seed just to fall on the rocky soil uh, without something changing. Are you actually changed by the gospel? Is Jesus actually your Lord, or is he just the president? Are you just showing up to church because that's what you've always done, or people expect you to be here, or from the outside looking in, people think you're going to be here, you're a usual suspect? Uh, Or are you here because you love the Lord, because your heart has been changed, because deep down inside the gospel has taken root. That's the rocky soil. The last one it talks about here uh, is the soil with weeds in it, right? The soil with thorns in it. Those are the ones that as the the seed grows, these thorns grow up as well alongside it and choke it out, right? The final way uh, to kill the growth of fruit in your lives is not to prioritize the gospel above all else. I think of all the schemes, of all the hindrances, of all the, you know, weed killer that, that or all, all, I guess at this point, the fruit killer that Satan sells on his shelves. Uh, this is the one that modern Americans have the most trouble with. Um, certainly in my work with college students, I 100% think this is the most common soil type. And if I'm being honest, I, I think it's the most frustrating soil type because they get so darn close. The tough thing is the soil itself isn't really the problem, Right. The soil, if you look at it, the soil type is actually not that bad. And how do I know the soil type's not bad? Because it's able to grow something. Something is growing there. It has potential for life. It has so much potential. It's just choosing to grow the wrong thing. It's growing up weeds, which is a thing, and it takes nutrients. It takes good placement. It takes access to water. It takes access to the sun. But it's choosing to grow up weeds instead of actually growing up a fruitful vine, a fruitful plant right? It has potential. It is able to grow things, but it chooses to prioritize the wrong things. Guys, there's always going to be something that's going to be important to do. You're always going to have plenty of stuff that's important to do. I'm not saying that these things don't matter, whether it's, you know, for our college students, homework or studying for an exam or catching up on some extra sleep. There's always going to be a good excuse to not prioritize, uh, to not devote time to God's word. But I know that the problem is uh, that we don't, that if we, that I know that if we had made it a priority, if we had made it a priority to spend time in God's word, we would have done it, right? How do I know? Uh, because if you tell me that you uh, had time to binge an entire season of Stranger Things, but oh, I just didn't have time to read God's word. No, it's not that you didn't have time. It's that you didn't make time, Right. If you're posting online about going to the gym and how often you're spending time in the gym, but you come up to me later and say, hey, I just forgot to pray this week. I didn't have time to pray this week. I was so busy with everything else. I just didn't have time to pray this week. No, it's not that you didn't have time. It's that you chose not to make time, right? You can't come up to me and tell me, hey, I, I really wanted to spend time in God's word, but you know, I just this week I didn't have time. Show me your screen time on your phone. Right? If you spent 10 hours scrolling through TikTok this week, Yeah, don't tell me that you didn't have time. It's that you didn't make time, right? 
And I'm picking on college students because that's who I most often deal with, right? Uh, But this plays out after college as well. There's always going to be some work deadline to meet. There's always going to be a fishing trip with your buddies or a house project, that one more project, that one more last thing that needs to be fixed. So when being with God, being absorbed in his word, uh, letting, uh, letting it be fruitful in your life, when that's not a priority, I promise you there's always going to be something that can come up and choke it out. No one can serve two masters. I said that this is uh, Satan's number one tactic for destroying fruit in our life today here in America. Uh, I think we're constantly surrounded by opportunities uh, for things that uh, are higher priority than bearing fruit. We're in a massive consumer and entertainment culture, right? It talks about here that it's the cares and pleasures and riches of the world that take away from the fruit. Guys, we have cares, riches, and pleasures of life out the wazoo, right? Uh, We got everything we could ever want in an unprecedented rate. If the people of Israel thought that they had cares, pleasures, and riches of the world as a problem, as a weed problem, as a thorn problem, they had nothing on us. We could really show them some actual thorns and weeds, right? Um... But I think this is the way that Satan has chosen and the way Satan has most strategically looked at our life as American Christians and said, this is how I'm going to try to prevent fruit growing in their life. Uh, and, and this one is really sneaky because it plays on who we are as people, what we most prioritize, what we most love. Um, there's a pastor up in Minnesota, his name is John Piper, and uh, he put this really well. So I'm just going to read this whole quote from him. Uh, he says this, the Bible teaches that when people follow Satan, they're not dragged away against their desires but instead them being dragged away is them giving in to their own ungodly desires satan takes away the word by making us feel that if we hold fast to the word uh, he will give us something better that's a great deception he is the great deceiver he doesn't snatch the word as much by threat of persecution right it's not hey i'm going to persecute you as american christians and then you're going to fall away no it's not the threat of persecution but instead the deceptive promise that things will go better if you just weren't so fanatical about God's word. And so thousands of people who've made a good start with the word of God give up to his lies, and the word is choked out in their lives. That's rough, right? You get a good start, right? Because it says here, the fruit starts to grow, and then the weeds grow up alongside with it and choke it out. When our number one satisfaction is not in Jesus, when it's not rooted in Jesus, when our number one priority is not God's word, when we put our focus, when we put our attention, when we put the center of our lives in something that isn't Christ, right? I promise you that it's going to eventually get pushed out to the margins, pushed out to the side, pushed out to a place where eventually you're going to look up one day and be like, man, it's been a month since I've opened God's word. It's been two months since I've actually prayed, right? When it's not the central thing that you're prioritizing, if your satisfaction is not in Jesus, I promise in an entertainment and consumer culture, a million things are going to be introduced that are going to seek to give you uh, that satisfaction instead, right? So if you want to see uh, your life that has weeds pulled up, if you want to see a life that that takes out those thorns, that that wants to prioritize growing fruit, uh, I'd recommend being engrossed in God's word, right? Spend time reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, talking about it with friends, praising God for the good that it's done to transform you and pray to him to make it more of a priority in your life. That's how we kill the weeds is we spend more time in God's word and we prioritize it even when other things seem more flashy, even when other things seem more fun, choosing instead to do what's good. So to recap, 
if we want to kill the fruit in our lives, if we don't want God's word to take root, uh, the three things to do with those first three soils uh, is one, dismiss it. Don't let it sink in. You know, whether by pride or distraction, don't listen to God's word. Uh, the second way, uh, try it out, you know, claim it, say it uh, out loud, but don't let it transform you. You know, over the surface, on top, where things are, where people, everybody else can see, uh, yes, live that out, but under the surface where no one else sees, uh, keep those rocks down there if you want to kill the fruit. And the final thing, the final way is to agree with God's word, you know, intellectually say, yeah, I, I agree with that. That is a good thing. Yes, I agree. Uh, but don't prioritize it. Don't actually make it a point to apply it to your life and do it uh, and live it out as a true priority. So those are the three ways that Jesus says are the best way to kill the growth of fruit in your life. Uh, so instead, if we are wanting to prioritize good fruit, if we are wanting to say, you know what, instead of that, I want to bear good fruit, what should we do? Uh, turn with me to John 15, because uh, I think this is one of my favorite passages where it talks about what it means to bear good fruits. Um, my college students have heard me talk about this a ton of times this year, probably more times than I can count. Uh, I told one of my college students that I was speaking on the topic of fruit, and the first question they asked me is, oh, so are you talking about John 15 this week or next week, right? <laughs> but it's just so important. It's so important to look at. So if you're at John 15, uh, read with me starting in verse 4. Uh, Jesus says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Pause right there. If anybody's you know, doubting my order that I have, you know, we are saved to do good works or to, uh, not uh, do good works to be saved. Notice that there it says you are proved to be my disciples. The evidence of being my disciples is that you bear good fruit. I just want to make that quick pause right there. We'll pick back up in verse nine. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you, and your joy may be full. That word that gets used there over and over again, to abide. What does abide mean? To abide means simply to remain or to stay. You know, if I, if I welcome someone into my house and I say, oh, welcome to my humble abode, right? Abode and abide are related words, right? Because my abode is where I abide. It's where my home, where my central base is, where I remain, where I stay, right? When you abide with Jesus, you walk alongside him, you're soaking in his love, his joy, his peace. You're soaking in his promise of good fruit. And that's what he promises. If you abide in me, then you will bear fruit, right? That's the promise that he gives. So if you want your soil to be good, abide with Christ. Invite him in. Ask him to do the work of gardening in your life. Ask him to change your soil from rocky or from thorny or from hardened path into good soil, right? The first thing we need to do is be walking with Christ. The second thing we're told is that he is the vine, we are the branches, right? Think about a grapevine, for example. There's no such thing as a grape tree, right? Only grape vines, 
the grapevine grows along the branches and it produces fruit, but it's not the tree itself that produces fruit, right? Jesus says right here, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. If you want to bear good fruit, look at your life and ask yourself, am I actively preparing myself to be a vessel like a branch is for a vine, right? Am I going out of my way to be the best possible branch that I can be for the vine to grow on it? Remember, we have an enemy out there who's constantly working to keep our life from being transformed by God's word. Whether by, you know, pecking birds or the scorching sun or the choking weeds, we have these spiritual enemies at work in our lives who are struggling against us. Therefore, the wise Christian who wants to see good fruit in their life makes preparations to face this adversary. And how do Christians prepare themselves to face the adversary? Paul tells us in Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God so that you may stand up to the schemes of the devil. We have the right tools. We have the right equipment to keep us safe. The only question is, are we going to put it on every day? Are we going to choose to arm ourselves for the battle and face off against the spiritual enemies so that we can be good, conducive vessels, good, conducive branches for the vine to grow on? Finally, we need to be patient in God's timing of good fruit. There's a natural order to the process. First we abide, and then we bear good fruit. You don't bear good fruit first and then start abiding. It's you abide in Christ, and then the promise is you will bear good fruit. There's seasons to this, right? Uh, and not every season is going to be the same. Going back to Luke chapter 8, uh, in verse 15, uh, we read this. As for the good soil, uh, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Patience being that key word at the end there that I want to highlight. The relationship between the seed and the soil is always a really interesting one to me because ultimately the fate of the seed, the, the result of fruit, isn't up to the soil itself, right? The soil isn't existing in isolation. There's biological systems, the DNA of the seed itself, that command its growth. The soil has nothing to do with that, right? The weather conditions outside, the, the amount of water that falls on the soil, the sunlight that's going on around it, the soil has nothing to do with that, right? There's seasons of harvest, of, of growth. Uh, there's seasons of sowing. There's winter and autumn, right? And that has nothing to do with the soil. Whether the soil was good, bad, hard, or rocky, thorny, whatever, it has nothing to do with changing the, the climate that's going on around it. God has plans. God has seasons of life, times of great fruit, and times where you're going to see very miraculous things, and then other times of simply abiding. Yet in all of this, we're called to hold fast, to be patient, to rely on God, even when you don't see the big, magnificent fruit in your lives. We do this by praying, right? We, do, we bear fruit with patience by praying, by acknowledging and surrendering our control of the situation over to God. By saying, hey, there might be conditions outside of me, like the sunlight and the rainwater and the seasons that are outside of my control, but I trust you. The condition of our soil, the fruit on the vine, the key to the armory, right? Everything has been ultimately in God's hand the whole time. He's the primary worker. He's the one who's actually doing the growth of the fruit. We're his servants who assist him as best we can. We're the vessels. We're the branches that seek to allow the vine to grow on it without, without providing hindrances. So when we acknowledge this, when we pray fervently for him to make us good soil, for him to change us and transform us into good soil, for him to fulfill the promise of a ripe harvest, we receive God's word with a good heart of faith and we receive it deep into the good soil. And his promise is that once it's received, 
it will bear good fruit. So we've looked at these soils. We've looked at the times in our lives that have hindrances for growing good fruit. If you're looking at your life right now and you're examining it and you're saying, man, I, uh, I don't think I have been changed, right? I think I've hardened my heart and I haven't let the gospel transform who I am. Uh, or maybe uh, over on the top level uh, where everybody else can see uh, I, I'm living, I'm here at church, but I haven't let God transform me under the surface where no one else can see, right? Um, if you haven't been living with Christ, but you want him to transform you, if you want to live with him, uh, we at Harvest have two prayers we pray every week. Uh, the first one being a prayer of uh, salvation. And so uh, maybe you'd pray something like, like this with me. King Jesus, as I, as I look at my life, as I look at the, the type of soil that I have in my heart, uh, I recognize, I see uh, that I have rejected uh, the seed, that I haven't uh, allowed it to transform me, that I haven't allowed my soil to be changed. And so God, uh, like a great gardener, would you come in and would you remove the rocks? Would you remove the thorns? Uh, would you make me from someone who is uh, spiritually uh, against you and your enemy into someone who is your friend? Uh, God, I recognize that there's sin in my life. I recognize that there is a cancer that's eating me up slowly. And I recognize that only you uh, can save me. And so, God, um, I repent. I want to turn around. I no longer want to go in that direction. I no, wanna, lo- no longer want to run away from you. And I said, I want to turn to you and I want to be um, part of your family and rely only on your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time, uh, if that is something that uh, you'd never done before, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Um, it's kind of like a little family reunion uh, when someone becomes part of the family. We'd love to celebrate that with you, welcome you into the family, uh, and just be there with you. The second prayer we have uh, that we end every every week with is our prayer of application, right? The prayer of discipleship, of following what Jesus says. And so if anything that we talked about today, you're like, man, I want to apply that to my life. I really want to live that out. Maybe you'd pray something like this with me. Jesus, I know that you uh, have made us to bear good fruit. I know that bearing good fruit is the fulfillment of the work that you started in us with salvation. Uh, and so Jesus, would you do a, a, a miraculous work of transforming my heart and showing me areas of my life where I have been preventing and hindering good fruit growth, where I've been a branch that gets in the way of the vine instead of supporting and helping the vine to grow. Uh, Jesus, in my life where there are weeds, would you pull them up? In my life where there's still sin hidden under the surface that I, that I haven't dealt with, Lord, would you dig those up and take them out? Uh, Lord, in the, in the places where my heart is beginning to harden, where I have a hardened path, Lord, would you take a plow and just drive through it? God, I want to abide with you. I want to remain in you. Uh, And so, Lord, let me abide in your love. Let me abide in your joy. Let me abide in your peace uh, so that I may bear good fruit with you. King Jesus, uh, above all else, uh, I love you. Uh, I want you to be the Lord of my life, and I want to treat you like my Lord and not like a president. King Jesus, uh, fulfill your promise. You've promised that if we abide in you, you will bring good fruit. And so please fulfill that promise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Rachel? Thank you. Let's stand together and just sing one little closing song as we leave today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures.
so much for being here. Have a great week.